March 1, 1922, the state of Tennessee set the record for the most people executed in the electric chair in a single day. Four men were strapped into the chair named Old Smokey, one at a time, and they were executed in the span of 32 minutes. Over a hundred years later, this record still hasn't been broken. But what did these men do that was so gruesome that they deserved this cruel fate? It's a story that shocked the nation in 1921, resulting in one of the largest manhunts in American history. And it happened right here in Appalachia. It's a heck of a story that's nearly been lost to time. Hold on to your hats and buckle up for this one, folks. Andrew Crumley was a simple man. He worked for a taxi service in Knoxville, Tennessee. In the late afternoon of May 30, 1921, two well-dressed men in their 20s approached him to negotiate a taxi ride. Now, Crumley didn't know it, but this ride was about to forever change his life and American history. Unknown to Crumley, the selection of his taxi cab was not random. The two men were specifically looking for a big and powerful car to employ. Crumley's car was perfect, the Chandler 6, with its large seven-passenger seating capacity, a powerful, fast engine that was advertised with the benefits of handling steep grades in mud or sand. It made it the perfect getaway vehicle. Crumley and the two men agreed on the fare, $3 an hour for city roads and $3.50 an hour for county roads. As soon as the taxi pulled out, the men told Crumley they wanted to stop in a place called Clinton, Tennessee first. Then they would continue five and a half or six miles further, offering no specific location. Crumley, he grew suspicious that the men wanted to pick up illegal moonshine, and he told the men he didn't want to have any part of that, especially since prohibition was in his first year, and the penalty for illegal booze was one year in jail and a fine equivalent of $60,000 in today's money. The two men assured him that their trip had nothing to do with illegal bootleg liquor. Crumley agreed to continue, but as a precaution, he was going to swing by a boarding house where he lived to pick up one of his closest friends. Crumley explained to the men that he wanted the company for the late drive back to Knoxville. Heck, the roads during that time were difficult to navigate. Only a few of them were paved, and none of them had street lights. So, Crumley stopped and he picked up his friend George Lewis who climbed into the front seat with Crumley and the two strangers in the back seat. Together, the four men set out to the Watt Hotel in Clinton. Once they arrived, one of the men in the back seat named McClure got out of the taxi saying he'd be back in just a moment. There were two men, Otto Stevens and Tom Christmas, waiting on the front porch of the hotel. Within a few minutes, the men loaded their luggage into the taxi and they were on their way. But where to? They still hadn't told Crumley exactly where he was going. Now there were four strangers seated in the back of the car, and they told Crumley they wanted to drive into the country. Crumley pulled away from the hotel just as the sun was setting, and he was given turn-by-turn -turn instructions to some unknown destination.
As the trip continued, there was talk and laughter. The four men seemed to be enjoying themselves in the back of the taxi. And, Crumley and Lewis, they were having fun up front. Crumley still wasn't exactly sure where the men wanted to go. But, the relaxed environment of the car alleviated any further suspicions or concerns. After driving about 12 miles, one of the men yelled from behind, Stop the car! I think this is the place. Petrie got out of the car and he looked around. But apparently he didn't recognize the location and he hollered, No. Petrie then stepped onto the running board of the car and he told Trumley to continue a little further. At this point, Crumley was certain that they were looking for a moonshine still. After driving a short distance, Crumley was told to stop again. Petrie went in the front of the car to look around and he asked Crumley if he saw a trail going off the road. Crumley replied that he didn't when all of a sudden he heard from the back seat, Get your hands up! Confused and stricken with fear, Crumley and Lewis immediately complied without looking to see who was issuing the order. Crumley was sure that it was a local sheriff who was making an arrest due to the illegal nature of their stop, which in his mind was the location of a moonshine still. Crumley began to plead his case to the imagined sheriff. I ain't done nothing. I got a taxi badge here showing that I'm a driver from Knoxville. He also added that his friend was innocent too, explaining that Lewis was only along for the ride. When he was finished speaking, there was dead silence. Crumley, realizing that nobody was responding, mustered the courage to look over his shoulder to see who had issued the command. As Crumley turned, he heard the voice say again, Hold your hands up. At that moment, Crumley realized that there was no sheriff, as all four men pointed their pistols at Crumley and Lewis's heads. Both men were ordered to get out of the car, and their hands were tied behind their backs. The four strangers began searching through Crumley's pockets. They found his army discharge papers, a taxi badge, two or three dollars, several letters, and a New Testament Bible. Nervously, Crumley began begging, If you want this car, men, I, I, I don't know what this is all about, but anyway, if it's the car you want, just take it. You can drive right off, and I won't object. Spare my life. I have a wife and a baby at home. One of the men responded in a condescending, snide way. You'll see your wife and baby's all right. Crumley continued his nervous rambling when one of the men put a gun in his face and said, Shut up, or I'll blow your damn head off. Crumley complied as the two men were led by a flashlight up a hill towards a very dark and secluded wooded area on the top of a ridge called Black Oak Ridge. Once they reached the top of the ridge, they approached a large, deep gravel pit that was about 50 feet in diameter and had an ominous sinkhole appearance that looked like a crater. The four bandits tied the men up with trout line. Crumley's hands were throbbing from the tightness as the trout line began cutting into his flesh. They gagged Lewis and Crumley with a towel that was held in place by a piece of trout line wrapped several times around their head. Suddenly, the mood of the men changed. They began to sadistically taunt Crumley and Lewis with threats like, How do you feel now? And, If you move, we'll blow your brains out. After they finished tying up the pair, Petrie took Crumley's hat off his head and he said, Let him have it. Suddenly, one of the men holding a gun hit Crumley in the back of the head with a massive blow. 
Crumbly collapsed to the ground in excruciating pain and he blacked out. Lewis was next. He received two or three horrifically hard blows to his head, crushing part of his skull. Crumbly slowly opened his eyes and he felt that everything that was happening was distant and faint. But he decided in order to survive, he would fake his own death. He heard one of the men ask, Have you cut him yet? The reply was, No, I'm going to now. The next moment must have been horrific. Crumley heard a gurgling noise that sounded like blood running and a squishing sound that he realized was a dull knife ripping through flesh. Crumley looked over at Lewis in time to see one of the men cutting Lewis's throat. Stunned, Crumley felt a footstep on his hand and he heard someone say to the others, He's dead. Then he heard the terrifying reply, Cut his damn throat anyhow. Crumley felt a cold hand grab his head and pull his face off the ground as a flashlight was being shined in his face and he felt his throat being sliced open with a metal blade. Then he heard one of the men say, Wipe off your hands. As the four men started to leave the pit, Lewis, who was laying there dying, began to have a seizure and his leg kicked involuntarily. One of the men heard Lewis's movement and he yelled out, That son of a bitch ain't dead. Then Crumley, sensing movement around him, heard another ghastly ripping of flesh and the cold-blooded response. That'll fix him. Barely conscious, Cromley heard the four men walking out of the pit. The leaves and the twigs were snapping underneath their feet, and the sound faded as they headed in the direction of the car. Knowing it was time to make their escape, Cromley looked over at Lewis, who was clinging to life in a pool of blood. With his hands still tied, Crumley desperately tried to get to his feet, but the blow to his head and the loss of blood made him dizzy. As soon as he got to his feet, he crashed face first back into the sandy gravel. He tried again to stand. He was able to get up on one knee and steady himself, and then he stood straight up. He walked towards his friend. He immediately noticed that Lewis's head was positioned in a disturbingly awkward way. The cut from the double slash was horrific. It must have severed most of his tendons and muscles. Lewis laid there in agony. His head was hinging open at the neck, increasing the savage effect of the double cut. Cromley, feeling compelled to straighten out Lewis's head, eased back down on both knees behind him. He tried to speak through his gag to let Lewis know he was there, and then he used his knee to adjust Lewis's head back in a more normal position. As he desperately tried to straighten out Lewis's head, Crumley heard the unmistakable sound of the death rattle. Lewis's body became motionless. For a moment, Crumley watched his friend, still laying in a pool of blood. He was dead. Terrified, Crumley quickly got to his feet and took one step and fell again. Now desperate, he struggled back to his feet and he climbed as quick as he could out of the pit. His mind began to suspect that the four men would be returning soon to make sure both he and Lewis were dead. With a gag in his mouth and his hands still tied behind his back, he ran through the dark woods, away from the direction that he thought the car would be. After only a few strides, he ran into a barbed wire fence and flipped over the fence. He felt the barbed wire ripping through his body. He knew he couldn't stay there, so he picked himself up and he walked a short distance until he spotted a farmhouse. 
In the yard of the farmhouse, Crumley was able to use a tree trunk to rub the gag out of his mouth down to his chin. He approached the door of the house and he began kicking and yelling for help. Help! Help! Please, please help me, please! All that commotion must have frightened the family that was inside, and the person on the other side of the door asked what he wanted. Crumley relayed in detail the tale of terror that he had been through. The owner was thinking it was some kind of a ruse and he refused to open the door, so Crumley was forced to continue searching for help. He soon came upon a main road, and as he was preparing to cross the road, he stopped for a moment and he listened in the dark, quiet woods. He heard what he knew to be the engine of his Chandler 6 roaring nearby, echoing like thunder through the mountains. He was convinced the men had discovered that he had made his escape and they were searching for him. Terror-stricken, Crumley ran away from the road and back into the woods, running as fast as he could, retracing his steps when suddenly he hit the same barbed wire fence. He didn't flip over the fence this time, but in total agony, he collapsed at the base and he passed out. During his blackout, by some miracle, the gag slid down from his chin to the bleeding wound of his neck, stopping the flow of the blood. Once he regained consciousness, he knew he had to keep moving. He stayed close to the forest line, following an open field, searching for another farmhouse. Crumley's mental state alternated back and forth between desperation and sheer panic. He began having delusions, seeing things that weren't really there. He stepped into an open field and he saw a building in the distance that looked like a farmhouse. So he decided to press on towards the building while using the forest as cover. Once he got close to the building, he realized it wasn't a farmhouse, but a school building. Exhausted, hurting, bleeding, and scared, he sat on the front steps. Still paranoid that the four men were looking for him, he felt exposed, and he knew he needed to find help soon, so he kept moving with the road well to his left. He knocked on several more doors of homes, only to be denied help again. Finally, at midnight, somebody took him in. They contacted the doctor, and they called the authorities. Somehow, Crumley had survived this hellish nightmare. At daybreak, the authorities began looking for Lewis's body, and after an exhausting several-hour search, they finally located the gravel pit and the body. The crime scene was horrific. Lewis was lying on his back with his hands tied behind him, a gag in his mouth, three or four wounds to the back of his head, his pockets turned out, his juggler vein cut, and a small knife stabbed in the middle of his torso. The undertaker was immediately called to remove the body, and the official cause of death was listed as murdered, throat cut, skull crushed. Meanwhile, the four men had no idea that anyone survived their attack. They left the gravel pit area and immediately set out for Morgan County, where their true intentions for stealing the car would soon be revealed. That's right, they were going to rob the Oakdale Bank. Once they got to the bank, it was about 3.30 in the morning. Two of the men, Stevens and McClure, they were carrying a leather bag and they got out of the car and they worked their way to the back of the bank building 
where they broke out a window. Once they were inside the bank, they hid, ready to ambush the cashier when he opened up for morning business. Meanwhile, the other two men, Christmas and Petrie, waited in the getaway car just up the hill out of sight. Now these old boys didn't know it, but their plan was about to take a turn for the worse. You see, at 8 a.m., the first employee arrived and unlocked the front door of the bank to begin the day. Little did Stevens and McClure know, but there was also several townsmen that were waiting outside of the bank for it to open. The previous day was payday at several businesses, and the men wanted to cash their checks. The bank teller entered the bank, and he walked toward the cashier cage when the two bandits wearing masks and fake mustaches jumped up from behind the counter. However, the bank teller immediately recognized Stevens, fake mustache and all. He had known Stevens, who grew up in Oakdale for several years. McClure held a pistol on the bank teller while Stevens walked around the counter to a group of men standing at the front door to cover them. Everybody in the bank was commanded to get their hands up. Three or four men that were closest to the front door decided to make a break for it. They managed to open the door and run into the streets, which sounded the alarm. Stevens quickly made his way back to the front door to lock it behind the fleeing group. Knowing that the bank scheme was foiled, he ran to the back of the bank and yelled to McClure, Let's get out of here! McClure grabbed the empty loot bag, and both of them climbed out the back window. The entire plan had went to hell in a handbasket. Fleeing the bank, the two robbers headed up the hill towards the getaway car. Petrie and Christmas started up the car, and, with all four inside, they drove down the hill at a high rate of speed, passing right in front of the bank. Losing no time, the bank teller and several other men jumped in their cars in hot pursuit, and just like that, the chase was on. roads were rocky and hard to drive, but the smaller cars were no match for the fast getaway car. Ironically, it was no match for the driver either. You see, whoever was driving the Chandler lost control of the car around a curve and wrecked it, hanging the back end of the car over the side of the Emory River Bridge. The four men abandoned the car and they ran down the railroad tracks alongside the river. Yet, the search continued all day. Word quickly spread about the stolen Chandler and a murdered man on Black Oak Ridge. Local residents and police began to mobilize a posse. The bank teller and his men found the wrecked car and decided to board a freight rail and travel in the direction that the men were last seen heading. By 2 p.m., they spotted the four men sitting on the tracks near a narrow holler surrounded by bluffs. With a surprise attack, they quickly captured Petrie and McClure, and a gun battle erupted. As Christmas and Stevens managed to escape over the top of the ridge, Petrie and McClure were brought to the Harriman Jail. However, anger and hostilities were swelling among the residents of the small town. The police chief knew that if he kept the two prisoners there, that a lynch mob would storm the jail and take the prisoners. Expecting trouble, the decision was made to transport the prisoners to Knoxville since it was a much more secure location with a larger police force. The frantic search continued for Christmas and Stevens. The Tennessee governor placed a $900 wanted dead or alive bounty on their heads. Newspapers reported the story all across America. As posse numbers began to swell to capture the two men, news of the reward brought bounty hunters, mountain men, and farmers alike to the mountains of Morgan County. It was estimated that as many as 500 men were combing the countryside, looking for the two men 
They were equipped with every weapon in the county, and the sounds of bloodhounds echoed through the mountains. Christmas and Stevens knew these hills like the back of their hand. For the next three days, they eluded capture in the rough mountain terrain until they came across an empty house in the woods. There, they spent the night and they recharged by eating the only food that was in the house, one can of salmon. Eventually, they made their way to a remote area called Nemo and the home of a friend of Christmas who took them in. There, they were able to hide in a cave that was located about two miles west of the friend's home. They would come down twice a day for their meals, and from the security of the mountains, they witnessed the posse coming to their friend's house a few times, looking for the fugitives. After two weeks of hiding in the cave, they devised a plan for Christmas's brother to sneak the two out of the mountainous area in the trunk of his car. However, once they reached the bottom of the steep, climbing roads, the sheriff and his posse were waiting for him with their guns drawn, and they took Christmas and Stevens into custody. Soon, Christmas and Stevens were reunited with Petrie and McClure in Knoxville Jail. They were charged with murder and armed robbery, and the prosecution of the state of Tennessee wanted the death penalty. The story captivated all of America. A car theft, a gruesome murder, a heroic escape, attempted bank robbery, a car chase, posses, spectacular captures. It's no wonder newspapers were selling out. The murder was considered one of the most horrendous acts in the history of East Tennessee. Soon, crowds from all over poured into the jailhouse to get a glimpse of the desperados. More than a thousand people were estimated to have visited the jail to view the four men. That was a prelude to what was to become at the actual trial. As the trial approached, reports were starting to make their way to the press that every rental car in East Tennessee had been rented. Every train ticket had been sold and every hotel was filled as this was shaping up to be one of the most sensational trials in Tennessee history. On July 18, 1922, the population of Clinton, Tennessee was double its normal size. Trains were arriving full of passengers. Taxis were lined up at the depot, ready to ferry the crowd to the courthouse less than a mile away. Street vendors poured into the city, setting up food stands on each corner surrounding the courthouse. Street performers were also en route. A blind boy stood in the street in front of the courthouse singing for coins. Cigar and cigarette girls were parading up and down the courthouse hallways. The courtroom was jam-packed. Roughly 500 people were squeezed into a room meant for 300. Others not as lucky. They crammed in the hallways and the courthouse steps. Chairs were at a premium. A local furniture store sold out of all its chair inventory on the first day. Spectators were seen leaving the courthouse every day with their chairs. Folks began fighting over them. Squatters' rights seemed to prevail regardless of the true owner of the chair. However, the July heat was oppressive, and the packed courtroom was like an oven. Shouting above the crowd noise, the judge demanded that an alleyway be formed from the window to the witness box. Spectators, unwilling to relinquish their spots, refused to move. The judge ordered that anybody not obeying his command would suffer a $5 fine. Still, nobody moved. Furious, the judge left his bench and he climbed over the tops of tables and chairs to exact his orders. The bailiff finally created an alley. However, it didn't matter. The heat was still sweltering. At one point, a woman fainted while others became ill. Once the trial began, all four defendants refused to take the witness stand, so the court and the jury never heard any claim of innocence from the defendants. They maintained their silence. As a result, 
It became the first death penalty case in Tennessee history where the defendants had not taken the witness stand in their own defense. However, when Crumley took to the stand on July 21st, the crowd became abnormally silent, hanging on his every word. As Crumley described in detail, the horror of the night the defendants murdered his friend and left him for dead. If there was any doubt about the four men's guilt, it ended with Crumley's testimony. The court recessed for the day while the jury deliberated. The carnival atmosphere had reached a pinnacle. Wednesday morning was judgment day. The courthouse was at its fullest, with crowds pouring out from the hallways to the steps and into the streets. The jury was ushered into a standing room only crowd. The judge immediately got down to business and he asked the jury if they had reached the verdict. The presiding juror rose. It was apparent to the crowd that the jurors were under extreme stress. The foreman read his statement and his body began to shake and tears began to flow. He paused to regain his composure and he continued, Guilty in the first degree and the sentence recommendation was death. After calm had been restored, the judge sentenced the men to death by the electric chair. The men were immediately transported to the Tennessee State Penitentiary in Nashville. Over the next couple months, the four convicted killers exhausted all of their appeals, and finally on March 1, 1922, the moment had come. The execution was slated for dawn, however, the day began drearily with clouds and rain. McClure's attorney arrived to finish up his will and he witnessed the scene. The four men were all in cells next to each other, and they were located less than 10 feet from the electric chair, and they were all about to find out firsthand why the chair had the nickname Old Smokey. The most nervous of the men was Petrie, and he appeared that he might collapse as the moment got closer. So, as a reward, the guard strapped him into Old Smokey first, as the other three men still in their cells watched in horror. At 6.15 a.m., Two wet sponges were placed on his body, one on the top of his head that was attached to a metal electrode, and the other sponge was wrapped around his ankle, attached to the other electrode, to make sure that the current flowed through his entire body from head to toe. The command to flip the switch was given. Black smoke poured from the victim's body and Old Smokey, and it billowed down the hallway into the prisoner's cells. It filled the room with a stench of burning flesh. And within five minutes, Petrie was pronounced dead, but there was no time to waste. At 6.30, Christmas was strapped into Old Smokey. And the smoke continued to fill the room. At 6.40, it was Stephen's turn. The plumes of smoke continued. Heck, the guards were getting good at this and improved their electrocution prep time each time a new man was strapped in. Finally, at 6.47 a.m., McClure became the last man strapped into Old Smokey. When it was over, four men had died in the electric chair within 32 minutes. This was the first time in Tennessee history and most likely the last, that four men were electrocuted on the same day. Witnesses reported that you could barely see in the room that was full of the stench of death and black smoke, something none of them ever wanted to witness again. 
It's been over a hundred years since these events took place. And this story has nearly been lost to time until now. There's nothing left but a few newspapers and court records. Oh, and Old Smokey. Over the course of its life, 125 men took a ride on Old Smokey before it was decommissioned. But you can still go see Old Smokey the next time you're in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. Visit the Alcatraz East Crime Museum where Old Smokey is on permanent display. Music